Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews. How are you all? Are you all okay? I am. I am. I say that in a way that it makes me sound as if I'm absolutely not, but actually, I think I am. I'm tired. I've got too much to do. Uh, there's lots to worry about, but aren't we all aren't we all in that same position? So we'll just carry on, I think. Um, now this week, uh, it's uh, I'm all beside myself because it's the first time that I've interviewed an author whose book I've already reviewed on this podcast a few weeks, few months ago. But it was such a joy to be able to get to speak to this author that I just just had to. So forgive any repetition, um, but it's just got to be done. So the books I'm covering this week are Miss Benson's Beetle by Rachel Joyce. Yes, that's who we've got coming on, Rachel Joyce. So excited about that. Then I'm reviewing as well The Replacement by Melanie Golding. Uh, the next book continues the theme from the previous week. This is entitled How to Talk So Teens Will Listen and Listen So Teens Will Talk by Adele Faber and Elaine Maslish. Then we have got an audio book, no less, State of Terror, and that's written by Hilary Rodham Clinton and Louise Penny. And finally, we've got Vine Street by Dominic Nolan. So quite a selection of books. Let's just get stuck into it, I think. So Miss Benson's Beetle is, as I've said before, for me, it was just a glorious, glorious book. And I loved the audiobook version as well. Uh, this is the blurb. It is 1950. In a devastating moment of clarity, Marjorie Benson abandons her dead-end job and advertises for an assistant to accompany her on an expedition. She's going to travel to the other side of the world to search for a beetle that may or may not exist. Enid Pretty in her unlikely pink travel suit is not the companion Marjorie had in mind, and yet together they will be drawn into an adventure that will exceed every expectation. They will risk everything, break all the rules... And at the top of a red mountain, discover their best selves. Let's do first sentence like we always do. Uh, where is it? OK. Uh, yes, here we go. So the chapter one is entitled The Golden Beetle of New Caledonia, 1914. When Marjorie was 10, she fell in love with a beetle. 
I'm going to read the next sentence. I don't know why. I just want to. It was a bright summer's day and all the windows of the rectory were open. Um, yes, you know, I love this book and uh, uh, and it's just joyful, wonderful, um, something that stays with you. Anyway, I, you know what I think. Let's go and talk to Rachel now. So Rachel Joyce, author of Mrs. Benson's Beetle, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. It's really lovely to have, come and have a chat with you, come out of my lonely study <laughs> have interaction with real people. <laughs> well, your book is the only one I've ever had actual letters from listeners about. I get messages quite a lot, but I've had letters about Mrs. Benson's Beetle, about how much this book has meant to people and just how special and wonderful it is. Do, did you get that feeling as you were writing it? Well, I mean, yes, I did. For me, I did. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of, it's quite a long answer to your question, really. But I, I did feel for me, because I decided to write a book that was supposed to be solely women, there was supposed to be no men in it at all. I found it really liberating to write in that way, you know, just to kind of cover my subject, my people. You know, it was, it felt really right to do it. And I felt, I found it very kind of, I mean, empowering isn't the word I normally use, but I did feel it had a, an energy and it gave me an energy I didn't expect. And in fact, I'd promised that it was going to be a really quiet, small book. And of course, I started writing these women and I put them together and I thought, there's no way these women are quiet. And there's no way this energy is quiet. And I believe in what it's saying so passionately. So it felt, I mean, it felt like a real call from me. So um, I did find it really exciting to write. But having said that, it came out during lockdown. So actually... It felt a bit like something I felt so passionate about. I felt, I felt it felt so big and loud. Actually, sort of just made a little pitter patter noise, and then and then I, you know, because I, I had no interaction with readers. You know, we were all, you know, we were all at home. There were no bookshops open, so all the things I would normally do, I didn't have, and I realised how much I missed it and how important it is to me. I mean, I think to any writer. It's part of the process. It's part of the letting go that you give it to other readers and they kind of reflect it back at you. Uh, and I would think especially this book, because it's it does feel oh, I don't know. It's just one I will never I will never forget. And I will carry those characters with me for forever. I think Let, let's go back to the basics. So you you got this idea. There's quite a story. You had this these two women that wouldn't let you go yes and they bothered you until you wrote a story yes. about them they did I mean I, I often feel with books that they kind of before I write them I'm being stalked by a number of books and it's just which one is you know which one is going to stick really but these two women in some way, I knew they'd been around for a really long time, but I didn't really know who they were or why they were there. And then when I kind of hit upon this idea that I was going to write about searching for this tiny beetle that may or may not exist, I um, I thought, well, it's the women. Originally, I did think, oh, it's a man looking. And then I thought, what am I doing? What am I doing? I'm a woman. Hmm. 
so I thought it's, I knew it was Marjorie. And then I thought, actually, this is a story about an extraordinary friendship. And, but also the things that I believe women can do when they listen to one another and stand together, you know, how, how powerful we can be. So, um, so then I realized it was these two women and it was a kind of delightful, it's like almost as if the book had got there before I had, you know, it kind of knew what it was, but I couldn't hear it. Just wonderful. Uh, yes. For me, it was a, a celebration of, of women, um, you know, the, the best in us and, and the worst in us as, as well, I, I suppose, and, and friendship throughout that. I'm interested because often it, when you've written a book, the characters stay with you more afterwards because you've sort of you've given birth to them as you're writing. And yet these characters were with you before you started writing. So did that did they still are they still there? Are they still hanging around or was it sort of cathartic to write this story? I think it probably was quite cathartic to write it because, I mean, I think also it was necessary for me to write it. So when I was writing it, I often thought, you know, if I was driving somewhere, you know, I think, oh, they're, they're here. They're in the back of the car. You know, they're there. And the, I have um, a photograph of two women that kind of inspired the book in some way or, or, or inspired me. And I still have that. I'm kind of above my desk because they it feels just... Um, yeah, I think it felt like a part, it was a part, it was a part of my growing up. That's what I mean, without wanting to sound too kind of, you know, out there. Um, so for all those reasons, they did stay with me. But having said that also, you know, once the book was written, it, it as I said, it, it did feel as if they were going to move on, you know, a bit like uh, Mary Poppins. They were going to go on and do something for somebody else. But as I said, I, I, whether or not they did, I don't know, because I heard so little about what was happening to them in the world. That's such a shame because it has, I, I hope now you're getting the, the, the feeling from readers about the impact of this book. I, I get it a little. I mean, I still get, you know, Harold Fry still is the one who sort of gets in the way of everybody. You know, he's yes. just everywhere. I mean, not that I mind at all, but he seems to be the one that, you know, people really talk about. So even if I mean, I've hardly done any talking about Miss Benson's Beetle, but uh, when I do, we always get back to Harold. <laughs> what a lovely man. I feel he probably wouldn't want so much attention. <laughs> well, we'll talk about Harold very briefly and then we'll go back to, uh, to Mrs. Benson's Beetle. But um, yes, the, the story of Harold is living on. I mean, the, the, there's news on that. Well, yes. I mean, that was how my lockdown passed, really. I was, you know, I'd let go of, of Marjorie and Enid. And actually, even in letting go, I then realised I couldn't completely let go and went on to write other things. I in, ended up writing a, an interview with them for the back of the paperback and kind of various things. It's like I couldn't let them go. But then I did also have this long-standing um, kind of commitment, really, to the film the screenplay of Harold Fry, which I'd been doing over the years, but lockdown kind of just really centered me really. And I sat there and did it. And finally we got there and it got funding and it's now being made. It, they have just, they've just arrived in Berwick-upon-Tweed. Oh, wonderful. And, and do you have any idea of when we will get to see that? We are hoping it will be next year. Very, very good. Well, that's something 
to look forward to it. And as well, before we go back to Mrs. Benson's Beetle, the music shop is on um, BBC Sounds as well, which is... Yes, it is. And in fact, I recorded that a good few years ago. And um, I mean, I cannot listen to it. I hear my voice and just think, <sighs> oh my, no. Somebody tell her to shut up. But uh, what was so lovely about doing it, as I remember, is that they incorporated all the music. And it, I think it's the only place where you can actually hear the book, but you can also have the music there playing in the background, which I think is a really lovely way of doing it because the book is so much about the music. Yeah, wonderful. OK, so we've covered those. Let's go back. Yeah, let's go back to Mrs. Benson's Beetle. The audiobook, because as well as reading it, I listened to the audiobook version and you've got Juliet Stevenson yeah. narrating it, which for me, I mean, I, I, I personally, I couldn't call her a narrator of the book. She, she acted it. Um, once you heard her, did you feel comfortable with her doing the book? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I love it when other people get involved in books. It's, you know, because books are such a solitary process. And, you know, I'm I'm up for that. I know what it is. But as soon as other people get involved, like you know, the audio book or the, the book jacket, I always find it really exciting because it's it's like they've come on board. They've come on my, you know, come on my carriage, but also just seeing what other people do with it. And the way she particularly played Enid, this beg pardon, was yeah. that how how you was that how it was in your mind it, it was a little I mean the trouble is that once you hear it you can't hear it otherwise you can't remember how it was in your own mind but yeah I mean I I think she's delightful and what's as you say what's so great is she just rolls up her sleeves and gets in there and absolutely is it mm, yes uh, and on first glance the book is well, when I started reading it and listening to it, I thought it was just and nothing wrong with it, but a nice, cosy read. Yeah. But there's so much more to it. Was that always your intention? It always is my intention, really. I think you sort of seduce people a little with, oh, this is going to be a sort of jolly old, not a jolly story. I don't, that's not that's the wrong word, but, you know, this is going to be a good story. And I think it is very important that you keep the readers with you, you know, and you keep them excited and interested. But for me, a book is always about debating something bigger, you know, kind of what is the question? What, what are we looking at here? What are we what are we asking ourselves? And so I think that for me is where they're satisfying because you can develop a theme, you can, you know, you can riff on a theme um, so that the book has something deeper. Did you, did you change anything as you were writing it uh, and as you were approaching those deeper themes? Oh, I'm always changing things. I'm always changing things because I'm somebody who can't plan. I know everybody says you should plan a book when you read it. And I do try to plan, but I never stick to the plan because for me, the plan is not the same as getting in there. You know, and it's only when you get in there and get your hands dirty that you see what works and what's true, given that it is fiction, you know, what's true to the world of the book. So, um, there was a lot that surprised me and a lot that was wrong, you know, um, and you just have to kind of go with that. I do anyway, and accept that it's a very long process and there are going to be a load of mistakes and that things along the way will come a little bit out of nowhere, but are good to go with. So when you sit down to actually start writing 
this book or, or any book? Is it just blank piece of paper, really, with just these characters, strong characters in your mind, but but not their story? It's very much. Um... It's very much the, I mean, I've thought before I start writing, I've asked myself lots of questions about the characters. And before I've start, started writing, I've thought, I mean, I've thought about the plot before I really commit. I've made lots of notes. You know, I've just done a lot of thinking. Um, so that it's not, it's not that it's a blank page and anything could happen. I sort of know where we are, but it's something to do with the voice of the book that is the thing that I think you don't discover. I don't discover until I start to write. And, and it takes me a long time to find it. So that's, you know, there was me thinking that Miss Benson's Beetle was this quiet, gentle, lyrical, beautiful book that, you know, I don't know who I thought I was, but, you know, obviously that was not, that was not right. That was not listening to the story and the characters and the energy. Yes, for me, it started off as sort of, a Sunday evening TV programme from 40 years ago yeah. and ended up being something that I would want that made, you know, this year. It was it was that sort of development that I loved. Yeah. Um, the, the book ends with this chapter called Freya. I'm not going to give anything away about that, yeah. but um, I was very intrigued by Freya. Will will we hear any more from Freya? I don't know. Um, she hasn't been stalking me, so um, I don't know whether she's happy as things are. Um, I mean, I am interested in in writing her story because I think she and Gloria would make a very fine pair. And it would be interesting to bring that energy, you know, to now. So I kind of have left the door open for myself. But but really, that final chapter for me is what the whole book is about, that and I wrote it for my daughters and my friends. And I also wrote it for um, very early on I, when I was trying to sort of find out about Beatles, about which I knew absolutely nothing. I, I'd emailed a number of people, mostly men, I have to say, uh, asking if they would talk to me about Beatles. None of them even replied. And then I found um, a contact at the Natural History Museum, a woman who said, yes, of course, I'll talk to you come to the Natural History Museum and I'll tell you why I love Beatles. So I went to London, I met her, we had a really good chat. And then she took me through one of those doors in the Natural History Museum that says no entry, you know, and you think, oh, here we are. And, yeah. you, and we, we went into this vast room, just her working in there. I mean, from floor to ceiling, drawer upon drawer upon drawer of Beatles. And she showed me, you know, one after another, she showed me how they label them. Um, she showed me some of Darwin's Beatles and I really, her, her passion was, well, it was intoxicating, it was infectious and it was inspiring. But she talked to me about, you know, very honestly about what it's like on the field still as a woman. And um, so I wrote that last chapter for her too. And then when the book was written, I felt a bit sheepish about it and I thought well I don't know I mean maybe I haven't really done her service you know she so I didn't really I kind of let it go also it was lockdown but I sort of let it go into the world uh, without really I thanked her but without going back to her again and then a few months later I did think I've got to get in touch with her and tell her what I've done and she sent me the loveliest email um, and she said she knew the last chapter was for her 
Oh. I was really, I mean, I, I I felt that felt really good. Yes, that she could sense that. And, and and when you met her, was that before you started writing the story? Just as yes. yes. That was that was very much very early notebook stage when I knew, you know, absolutely nothing. And I didn't even know who the women were. I just knew there was something there. So when you meet people, I'm just interested, is it people that stick in your mind or is it their stories that stick in your mind? Well, I think for me, they're both entangled, really. So mm. I would say that the person and the story yeah, I, 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 they, they feel, you know, they belong to one another. So I do remember both. And as I look at you, I can see behind your shoulder various post-it notes up yes. on the wall that I wish I could be able to zoom in and read, <laughs> but I can't. I think so. They're actually redundant now as well anyway. Oh. I put the wrong plot, yes. But that's <laughs> really trying to work out another plot, yeah. So that that is one of your tools when you're writing I love a post-it note yeah because it makes me feel as if I'm in control when I you know no I'm really not um so as things as I'm getting deep into the heart of things there are often post-it notes slammed all over the windows of that you know the house and yeah but I mean I think you know as a as a storyteller you I do think very much about you know the beats of a story because I think there are certain beats that even if as readers, we do, we couldn't identify what they are. When a story hits them, it's like inside us, there's a feeling of yes. You know, we, we know something's right. Mm. Um, so I, I mean, a post-it note is very helpful for just reminding me, I find, you know, what is the end of act one? You know, what what is the thing that sets this story off? Those, those questions that challenge you really to, to kind of, bring the story more alive or is there any pressure particularly sort of in the first chapter to retain the reader because it just seems that there's there's so many books these days and there's so many ways of reading them and there's it, it just feels like there's more pressure these days on the author to compel the reader I think you're right. I mean, I do I do find bookshops a bit overwhelming at the moment because I go in and there are, as you said, there are so many books and I get greedy. I just want to have read them all, you know, and just like, you know, I can't possibly actually do anything else if I read all the books I want to read. But I, I think you're right. I think it's partly TV as well is so the opening two minutes of TV are often so dynamic and so much happens just to get you in that we maybe expect the same of our books. Having said that, I have promised myself that the next thing I write, I will allow to be really quiet and really character led and um, you know, not to force plot on it, but just to see what happens if I really shine my torch on something very truthful and small. You know? And I still don't know whether it will hold. Um, but it's for me, it's kind of interesting to try because just if, you know, if that is what we expect, then why not subvert that a bit? Is there pressure on you to come out with the next book because you're, you know, you're now so well known and a trusted author? You know, one of these auto buys. If I see something written by you, I'll buy it. I won't even read the blurb on the back. Well, that's nice. Thank you. <laughs> I never think of myself in that way, but I think um, 
I'm, there's no pressure. I mean, I'm not aware of anybody putting any pressure on me to do or be anything other than what this next book is, you know, to kind of be true to that. Um, but we'll see, you know, if I write a quiet book and my publishers turned around and said, no, actually, I don't think we can do it. But I have a feeling they won't do that. I, I, I have a really good relationship with my editor and I think she knows what I'm trying to do and I think she gives me room to do it. So I'm very lucky. Do you write all your books in the same way, in the same place, or do they, are they, are they each written in, in different ways? They're pretty much written in the same place. And I only have really one good place, you know, one good quiet. I mean, I can write anywhere. I can, I, mean, I can write very happily on a train, but I haven't been on many trains in the last 18 months. True. So, um, but I do find trains, actually, there's something about just a very long train journey when you're sitting there surrounded by people you don't know. I've, I do find it quite exhilarating and interesting and then kind of dipping into my own little space and then coming out again. But on the whole, I come back to the same place every day and I battle it out with myself. And at the end of the day, I lock the door and go back to the house. And if you're having one of those days where maybe the words quite aren't coming as quickly as you as you would like, is there a go to? Is there a, a walk, a cup of coffee, a candle, biscuit? What's your go to? Well, there's always a candle anyway. Ah. I always light a candle. I mean, I just, you know, a, a smelly candle, I think, is a really nice thing to give yourself if you're if you're working all day in the same space. Um, and yeah, I do get stuck all the time. And yes, a walk, maybe. And sometimes like, you know, or just kind of not even a big walk, but just walking round and round, you know. And sometimes it is actually that you're not there yet. And I've got better, I think, at accepting that sometimes it's going to take a while. And I'm going to have to try, you know, I'm going to have to try opening a lot of different doors into a particular room. Um, and that the right one will turn up in the end, but I can't always see it to begin with. So when you're thinking about writing a book, is it almost that the character shouting the loudest to you is the one that you pull out and feature? Um, well, I think it's the one that I'm most drawn to, but it, that's normally the one that is pretty quiet, actually, because I think, you know, what's going on there? I mean, apart from someone like Enid, who just marched into the book, you know, fully formed. I mean, I, you know, there was nothing. It was almost as if there was nothing I had to imagine with Enid. She was just so clearly there. But I do feel she's some, on some level, Enid is, for me, the kind of creative female energy. and. Um, I think she was what I needed in order to kind of kick me out of the place that I was in. I did feel when I started the book that I'd, I was getting too comfortable. Not, I mean, I don't mean comfortable in terms of smug, but that I was too settled, becoming too settled in the writing place that I was in, that I wasn't surprising myself anymore, that I knew how my sentences were going to turn out and that I knew what my kind, I kind of knew what my view on things was. So I, th I think Enid was the kind of necessary kick for me, you know, to, and uh, I thought that the book was going to be set in the UK. 
Um, I thought it was going to be set in the present. And it was sort of like everything about Enid was saying, no, this, if this is an adventure story. And it did feel very important to me that it was an adventure story for women. Um, that in, if it was that, then, my, then I had to be in the unknown as well. So I had to write about somewhere about which I knew nothing. I had to kind of go to a time, period in history. I didn't realize it was historical fiction when I was writing it. I thought it was just, you know, some years ago, but that everything about everything I rely on, I had to kind of kick away. And, and Enid is very much that energy, I think. I, I mean, uh, Marjorie, I could visualize immediately. She reminded me of an old school teacher of mine. Uh, who every time she wiped the the board the chalk off the board hoiked her brass strap up you know this <laughs> solid woman of knowledge who's great um, um Enid I found it harder she, she was so unusual she was just this spark it was unlike anybody I I could immediately um believe her to be she was just brilliant and I love taking these two characters so different and then this bond that they formed, it was it was the stuff of, of dreams, really. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, yes, Marjorie was very much based, as you say, on I was thinking about teachers I'd had at school, um, you know, none of whom had first names, I look back, in, in my mind. Yes, absolutely. In fact, what I did get one, it came up to me uh, a few years ago and introduced herself by her first name. I hadn't a clue who she was. I had no idea. And it seemed so rude to say, hang on a minute, excuse me, what, what's your real name? But she, you know, she was formidable even then. And she was telling me stories about other teachers who taught me. And I thought, I had no idea that was going on. So there were these brilliant women um, but also women whom I, I would have said were my grandmother's friends and we called them aunts when we were children. And it took me years to realize that they weren't actual aunts. They were friends of my grandmother's. But they were, you know, they were the women who hadn't got married because they'd lost brothers and fathers in the First World War and then um, brothers again, um, you know, friends, fiancés, husbands, and uh, not husbands, fiancés, you know, people they've been in love with in the second, and then we're just sort of put to one side in the 50s. I think it's like nobody quite knew what to do with them. And they, some of them had sort of found their, found their feet a bit in the Second World War. And obviously men didn't really want them to kind of take away their jobs. So, you know, they were shoved back to the side again. And you do include men in this book. I mean, it's not just about women. No, I do. They weren't meant to be in it, to be honest. It was meant to be, you know, unequivocally and unashamedly for women. Uh, and then I, I wrote a tiny scene where basically when Marjorie is trying to find someone to go with her to New Caledonia, which is the other side of the world, she, she obviously has to have an assistant. And... Um, all this character, this male character had to do was be one of a number of male characters who were wrong for the job. That was all that was required. But as I said before, I, I, you know, I never write things once. I, you know, I write something and then I go back and I try and go a bit deeper or I, you know, just look at it in, in the kind of in the, within the bigger picture. So it's things are always shifting and changing, but it's never just there. And uh, 
anyway, this this bit with this man just kept getting longer and longer. And I was thinking for a bit part, he's taking up way too much page space. And then I kind of thought one day, hang on a minute, I think this man can't believe this book isn't about him. <laughs> and and I thought, well, that's really interesting. I'll go with that. So so he then became part of the book. So I did sit down one day and did something I don't normally do, which is just kind of do stream of consciousness writing for a character just to see what he revealed. And um, I thought, oh, he is actually potentially really interesting because he is such a foil to the women because he's, you know, they've all been damaged by the war, but he's a prisoner of war. He's seen things he can't unsee. And instead of being like the women open to change, you know, despite themselves initially, he has become so fixed. He has no empathy. And I think, you know, that is such a frightening place, I think, for a person to be and so frightening for the rest of us that I thought this being an adventure story, that he is a, he's a useful character to allow. And he can work both in the story and in the kind of bigger picture. So he was allowed in. And then a couple of other men were allowed in. But, you know, um, it's, it is it is mainly about women. Yes, very much so. The men don't um, always help themselves very very much no no and somebody said to me early on does it does it bother you that these women are that the men aren't as fully formed as the women and I said no in this instance it doesn't bother me actually I've read enough books and especially the adventure story genre where women are so kind of peripheral and black and white I I thought no it really doesn't trouble me in this instance no I'd say they're as fully formed as they need to be as they need to be yeah for the space that that they're provided but if you could go back to when you were starting to write this book is there anything that you would perhaps gently whisper to yourself as you're starting to write it oh um well I think probably Enid did the whispering so or, or Marjorie between them they did so I mean I think I was a little bit to begin with enamoured of the idea of this being this sort of sensitive beautiful oeuvre you know this kind of um and actually the kind of whispery voice was going you know get off wherever you are and just write the thing you know and it it can be bonkers and wild and sometimes a little bit out there you know and and maybe even pushing plausibility a bit but that is part of the kind of message of the book. So, so don't, you know, don't worry. I mean, that was, I think, I think I, I really thought I don't care if people don't like it. I believe in this. And did you have that feeling with other books? No, this? I've been much more um, kind of worrying about, you know, as you said earlier, you know, will, will people like this? Is this what is expected of me? You know, is this, and I think it just can really limit you. Well, I'm glad it didn't limit you and I'm glad you wrote it because it was wonderful. But just before you go, there's one other of your books we just need to very briefly mention. Um, you've written this uh, book called A Snow Garden and Other Stories. So I'm uh, just selecting what books I'm going to be featuring for Christmas. And of course, this immediately jumped up to me and said, you've got to got to feature this. Um, can you tell us a, just a little bit about it? Yes. I mean, A Snow Garden 
began as a series of, I think it was just one short story. And then I thought, because I love Christmas, but I always get completely, I always get kind of distraught and kind of overwhelmed by about Christmas Eve. So I thought I'm going to write a series of short stories that are set on those kind of days throughout the Christmas period that are also different. So like just before Christmas, when the schools finish, uh, and that and that's um, a woman who's just never organized about Christmas and then thinking, you know, how on earth am I going to make Christmas happen? Um, and then there's there's that night on Christmas Eve when a couple realize that the bike that they're supposed to be giving to their son in the morning, they haven't yet assembled. And in putting the bike together, their whole marriage kind of disintegrates. You know, that the thing you start to do at 11 o'clock at night that you think, why was I not doing this three weeks ago? Why did I even open the box? They're all pushed a bit, you know, the, um, to a sort of to that place that is half real and then a little bit, you know, kind of going into something wilder. But I find that a very interesting place to put stories. But the, the, they are interlinked. That's what I really enjoyed about them is that a character who's a main part in one story will then we'd be woven into another story, but as a sort of, you know, somebody in the background so that they all, it's like the stories go full circle. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I can't wait to read it. And it's, it's quite short. So even if people are busy with Christmas, they've still, uh, it's about 220 pages. They've still got time to dip in and out of it. So I'm looking forward to that one. Thank you. Well, Rachel, you have brought such joy to our lives and I just, uh, just keep writing for us. Please. Thank you. Thank you. That's a lovely thing to say to me. Thank you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Wow. 
Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Wow, well that was very, very interesting, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes, again, one to remember and uh, and never forget, I think. So from one great book to another one. Now this, The Replacement by Melanie Golding. Let me read you the blurb first of all. When a small child is found wandering alone, the local shopkeepers call the authorities immediately. 20 minutes later, the girl's mother turns up, panicked and distraught. It doesn't take long to clear things up and mother and daughter are soon reunited and sent on their way. Miles away, the body of a man is discovered floating in a bathtub. But the most surprising discovery of all is that he isn't dead. Despite his injuries, he is very much alive. Two seemingly unrelated events. But as D.S. Harper begins to investigate, disturbing truths start to come to light that connect the man to the mother and child. And suddenly it's not clear where the danger truly lies. Ah, Let's do the first sentence. Um, mm, mm, mm. Well, chapter one, it starts with a poem, but I won't read that because that you know, there is no sentence that I would read you the whole poem. Um, so let's just go from now. Friday, 21st of December. Leone presses her palm to the outside of the shop window. I'm going to read a second sentence. I'm sorry. The glass is cold. The fat little star of her hand leaves an imprint in condensation when she pulls it away. Okay, so when I first started reading this book, I made the fatal Philippa mistake. And the fatal Philippa's mistake is just before I go to sleep to start a new book. Actually, reading just before I go to sleep is a bad idea. Finishing a book, starting a book. So anyway, I started it. And the next day I was like, well, I'm not sure about this book. I don't know. In fact, to be fair, this was the next day was 3 a.m. when I was awake and couldn't get back to sleep. So I was just like, well. So I made the executive decision of going back to the start and starting again. And I am so glad I did because what it showed me, well, as I've already said, that it is entirely wrong for me to start reading a book when I am exhausted and going to fall asleep very quickly. I don't soak it all in. And I wasn't being fair to the author. Um, so I'm sitting there at 3 a.m. thinking I'll read a little bit and then I'll go back to sleep. There was no sleep for the rest of that day for Philippa. And why? Well, yes, there were things on my mind, but number two, this is a great book. I really enjoyed it. It was so different. I liked the fact that it wasn't exactly, uh, well, it wasn't like other crime books. It wasn't like other thrillers. It was, it was just different and fresh. And you know, I'm always droning on about that. And this delivered it. Um, entrancing, I think, is the word that that I would use. I remember seeing Melanie at Crime Fest in Bristol a few years ago um, where she was talking about her first book. And at the time I was thinking, oh, yes, I really should. The Little Darlings, that's right. That's what it was called. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, I really should get that book. And and I didn't, I'm ashamed to say. But 
crikey, I think I'm going to have to go back and read it because Melanie can write. She's got a talent here. Um, yeah, read it. Read it carefully. Give it its time. And just see. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. So that's the, the replacement by Melanie Golding. And I believe it's just been published the 11th of November in hardback, also available in ebook and audio download. And then, of course, there'll be paperback thereafter. So now we come to the book How to Talk So Teens Will Listen and Listen So Teens Will Talk. So this is part of the series of Philippa Needs Some Help at Home. Uh, and this was recommended to me by somebody who very kindly had approached me on Twitter when I said, does anyone have a book they would recommend for dealing with teenage boys? And her comment was, this is an old one, but it's a good one. And I thought it was very good, very interesting. Thumbs up from me. It breaks it down in good chapters so that if you're having a particular issue, should we say, you might be able to identify the chapter that uh, that resonates the most with you and that issue. Um, it's got it's got some funny little cartoons, which, OK, you might not be a cartoon person, but I enjoy them because it's a different way of soaking in the information and they portray, first of all, uh, here's how not to communicate with your teenage child. And then here's another way to consider to communicate with your teenage child that might actually reach a better conclusion. So I found that very interesting. I'm going to keep hold of this one. And uh, so if I'm having issues, I'll just say, just just hold it there one moment, run off, read the relevant chapter and then come back and say, right. So far, I would say this book is wor is working, is helping. Um, it is old school in some places, but it's the sort of the joyful gist, the, the sort of approach it suggests. It's done easily. You can just you can get what you need from the book quite quickly. Uh, that's not me being dismissive about it. Listen, it may not be for you, but it it's one I would go back to definitely. So that got the thumbs up from me. Now we go to State of Terror and I listen to this as an audiobook. Um, here's the blurb. After a tumultuous period in American politics, a new administration has just been sworn in. Secretary of State Ellen Adams is determined to do her duty for her country, but she's about to face a horrifying international threat. A young foreign service officer has received a baffling text from an anonymous source. Too late, she realises it was a hastily coded warning. Then a series of bus bombs devastate Europe, heralding the rise of a new rogue terrorist organisation who will stop at nothing in their efforts to develop their own nuclear arsenal. As Ellen unravels the damaging effects of the former presidency on international politics, she must also contemplate the unthinkable that the last president of the United States was more than just an ineffectual leader. Was he also a traitor to his country? Right, let's go to the first sentence. Chapter one. Madam Secretary, says Charles Boynton, hurrying beside his boss as she rushed down Mahogany Row to her office in the State Department. You have eight minutes to get to the Capitol. I enjoyed this book. Um, OK, it went on a bit at times, but I enjoyed it. It had a full story to tell, so it needed the time to do that. Um, the narrator was fine. Um, I just thought it was a it was an interesting story. I was astounded by how many things that the book was picking up 
have happened and have happened in the time since the book was written. So it's very sort of telling as to where the sort of the US politics might go and different threats and the result, you know, somebody does one thing and then it has implications that resort, result in other things happening. I don't want to give the game away. I enjoyed it. OK, if you're not into reading about US um, politics or terrorism, um, you know, a thriller like that, then you're not going to enjoy it. But I thought it was good. I haven't read Louise Penny's books before. Um, I've heard an interview with both of them that was really good, strong, positive women. So it's good to hear that. Uh, yeah, I I enjoyed it. Um, would I give it a billion out of a billion marks? No, I wouldn't. But I'd give it a strong one. I thought it, I thought it was uh, well paced, well written. Yeah. It's all good. So there, so there we are. And now we come to the final one. This is called Fine Street by Dominic Nolan. Uh, let me get the blurb. The narrow alleys are brimming in Soho with jazz bars, bookies, black shirts. So when a body is found above the windmill club, detectives are content to dismiss the case as just another young woman who topped herself early. But Gates, a good man, prepared to be a bad one if it keeps the worst of them at bay, knows the dark seams of the city. Working with his former partner, mercenary flying squad sergeant Mark Cassar, Gates obsessively dedicates himself to finding a warped killer, a decision that will reverberate for a lifetime and transform both men in ways they could never expect. Let's do first sentence. Now, the first sentence comes from a very recent time. So although it's based in Soho um, in the 1930s, this first chapter is in 2002. So part one, Soho, 2002, chapter one. Birds pick at the dead hedgehog Billy has been meaning to see to for a few days. Magpies are back eating that hedgehog. Um, today, yes, I've been breaking them all and doing two sentences for every book. I thought it was only fair. This is a clunker of a book. It's, uh, what, five, 575 pages. Um, for me, I thought it was a very interesting book. It was gritty. It was purposeful. Um, it was very evocative of the 1930s and gave you a really good grasp of some of the sort of grimier areas at that time in Soho um, it gave you a good take on the sort of culture then and the social um, distances between different groups um, I thought it had got the good drama in um, there was the what well, is it a Lee child of the 1930s that's my question. And I can't answer that. But I would suggest that if you like that sort of writing and you like something based in history, not that long ago, 1930s, um, then this could be a really interesting consideration for you. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a big book with a big story to tell. So there we go. So what books have we covered today? Let's have a quick recap. We have had Miss Benson's Beetle by Rachel Joyce and Rachel very kindly joined us today. We've had The Replacement by Melanie Golding. We've had How to Talk So Teens Will Listen and Listen So Teens Will Talk by Adele Faber and Elaine Maslish. We have had State of Terror by Hilary Rodham Clinton and Louise Penny. 
And finally, we have had Vine Street by Dominic Nolan. That's your lot. I've been quite quick today. I do apologise. Um, but I just wanted to celebrate the joy of Miss Benson's Beetle and can't wait to read the Christmas book um, by Rachel Joyce that we mentioned in the discussion and uh, and more. Can't wait for the next one. So there we go. Anyway, I'm off. I'm off to... Well, I need to get a start on the Christmas books properly, actually, because you've rightly said to me, I've had messages saying we need to know what Christmas books you're going to be reading and reviewing. Um, so I need to get on with that. I don't know if I'm ready to start my Christmas books yet. There are big decisions and I don't feel in the right place to be making those big decisions. Um, I shall get some better sleep and then I'll make the decisions and then I'll report back to you. So just look after yourselves and I'll see you very soon. Take care now. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 